Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. Tonight, we're uh, dealing with Theology uh, 101, and we're in the doctrine of eschatology. A little over a year ago, we started working our way through the doctrines of the Christian faith. And so let me remind you of just a couple of big picture ideas that, that are present in this study that just kind of set the framework for what we're going to do tonight. First, theology is the study of God and God's relation to the world. So all the things we've talked about, uh, whether it's the doctrine of revelation or the doctrine of God, humanity, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of the church, the doctrine of salvation, uh, or the doctrine of last things, uh, primarily it's about understanding God, finding out His purpose in the world, seeing Him, and learning to seek Him. Uh, another overarching truth that we need to remember is everyone does theology. Um, anytime anybody says God thinks this, or God says that, or God wants us to do this, that is doing theology. But not everyone does, does theology well. You know, there are politicians that don't mind using scripture verses, but sometimes they do so out of context. That doesn't mean they're good theologians. Unfortunately, there are lots of Christians out there who don't do good theology. They just repeat what they heard in a sermon. They don't really study the text and see what it means. And so our desire is to, is to try to go deeper and make sure we understand exactly what Scripture teaches us. Our goal is to do theology well. So we're going to try to do that over the course of the next few weeks. Uh, finally, we've saved the doctrine of last things for last. So uh, I remember when I came here uh, a little over eight years ago, I did a, a, a question and answer series. And so I took questions that you asked, and that was the content of what I taught on Wednesday nights. And I was asked several questions about eschatology and last things and millennial views, and I shared some thoughts then. There's a reason why I've been here eight and a half years, and I haven't preached through the book of Revelation. I haven't ever preached on Matthew 24, uh, not here, and, and uh, I, I haven't taught on the doctrine of last things. And, and I'm going to be quite frank with you. One of the reasons for that is I'm still working through some of the, my own landing spots in what the Bible teaches about last things. And that's going to become clear probably over the next several weeks as we work through some of these passages of Scripture and some of these theological concepts. Um, so that, that's, uh, that's something to, to, to keep in mind. There are uh, several principles, and these are some blanks that, that you'll fill in, several principles that kind of undergird our perspective here tonight. And actually, over the next several weeks as we work our way through this doctrine, here's the first one. The Hebrew linear view of history means that the world is advancing toward a telos or toward an end. And, and so what do I mean by that? Well, the, there are many different perspectives on time. If you go into, a, a, like for example, a Hindu concept. It's very circular, repetitive. That's why reincarnation is a part of a Hindu, Hindu concept. You come back in life, and so everything is circular. What happened once repeats itself, and it repeats itself again, and it repeats itself again. Uh, the biblical view, or the Hebrew view, is a very linear view of time, meaning that, that time began at a certain place, and it has an end. There's a goal uh, that is given to us in Scripture. And the goal, in terms of Scripture, is what we're going to talk about the next several weeks. The goal is eschatology. What is God bringing about in our world? And so part of the reason we should study the doctrine of eschatology, we should think about what is to come, is because that's the end point that God has given us in Scripture that we can look forward to. 
We may look around and see that the world's in chaos and the world is dissolving in frustration and difficulty and political division and and wars. And and just as a pause and a reminder, that kind of stuff's been going on for a really long time. I'll make another point about that in a moment. But there is an end to that. There is a goal and God's made it very clear what his goal is. And we're going to look at some of the texts over the next few weeks that make it explicit. What is God's plan? What's he doing in our world and what can we look forward to? I'll give you a second overarching principle. This is tremendously important. I don't want you to lose sight of this. Uh, probably if I don't say anything else tonight, this is the, the most important thing that you can take away. We need to enlarge our perspective on the subject of what is to come because of the vastness of what has been. So, so if, if you're anything like me and you grew up in any kind of... Uh, any kind of church scenario, church, Southern Baptist tradition, or maybe other traditions, you've seen the guys on the television screen with the charts of Revelation. And you've listened to the, the folks that, that have prophetic claims that talk about what this particular verse in Daniel means for the people of Israel and how all this is going to work out in the end times. And there are, there are times where in, in the doctrine of, of the end times... We get fascinated by what is to come. We kind of we focus in on, okay, are we living in the, in the last generation before Jesus returns? And what does that mean for me? And, and a lot of the questions you and I are going to have and some of the questions I'm going to answer. Notice I said some of the questions I'm going to answer. Some of the questions you're probably going to have I may not answer. But some of those questions are questions about, you know, when is Jesus returning? What about a rapture? What about a tribulation? What about an antichrist? And, and some of those some of those issues that we can think about there like the number of the beast and and how many of you saw the the facebook headlines in the last three years that that the covid shots are the number of the beast like you've already been marked anybody see those those facebook posts see all that kind of crazy stuff that's out there and so here's here's what that stuff can do if we're not careful we focus in on those little pictures that may find root in a place in Scripture, and it causes us to fear because here's what it does. We're thinking about how that's going to affect me. You know, what, what does that mean for me? When, when is this going to take place? How am I going to be affected by it? How are my family going to be affected by it? Uh, are we going to live through the last days? And, and here's, here's the, probably the most important thing we can learn scripturally. One of the great truths of the Bible is that God's work in the world has happened over thousands of years of human history. And because God's work in the world has happened over thousands of years of human history, that big picture work of God in all of Scripture kind of makes our lifetime and our circumstances a lot smaller in the whole scheme of reality. If God's worked faithfully for thousands of years of history, and guess what? I can trust Him to work for the 70 or so years that I'm going to live. And you can too. In other words, the big picture view of Scripture is supposed to give us confidence in the God that we say we worship every Sunday. And so that's an important, important reality. Uh, listen, our experiences are not incidental. Like, like the concerns you have about eschatology, last things, all of that, they're not incidental, but they're not primary. They're not the most important thing. How we feel about things, it's not the most important thing. The most important thing is what God says that is true. So uh, here's the third overarching principle that, I, that I'll, I'll leave you with before we jump into the 
specific content, we would be wise to hold our eschatological perspectives a little less tightly than other main doctrines of the Bible. We would be wise to hold our eschatological positions a little less tightly than we hold other doctrines of the Bible for several reasons. Some of the greatest scriptural students that have ever lived on planet Earth missed the prophecies of the Messiah coming the first time. Do you realize how many Pharisees and religious leaders had nearly all of the Old Testament memorized? They could quote from Psalm 2 and Psalm 22. They could quote Isaiah 53. They could quote the passages of Scripture, Micah 5. They could quote Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 7. All of those places that are messianic prophecies, the Pharisees and religious leaders could quote them. And when Jesus was walking in their midst, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing diseases, and challenging their religious perspectives, the greatest scriptural students in the world at the time, most of them, missed the Messiah who was the fulfillment of the prophecies that they had memorized. Okay? So so here's, here's what that means. Some of us who have different eschatological perspectives on how Jesus is going to come back and how all that's going to work out, some of us are going to be wrong. All right? So I'm going to make a case for some ways we should think about these topics. And guess what? We may wake up in heaven one day, and I was completely wrong about how the, the, the end times were going to work out. Or you may wake up and you may realize, well, I was wrong about how the end times worked out. And guess what? It's not going to matter because Jesus is in charge. How all the details shake out is not what's primarily important. What's primarily important is that it's about Jesus being king and being ruler and being the one in charge. And and so if if you really believe there's a pre-tribulational rapture, okay, I'm going to talk about that. It'll be a few weeks before we get there, but if you really believe that, okay, fantastic. I don't think that's the case. So I'll give you a preview of that. Y'all will, y'all will be like, okay, wait till he gets there. You know, he's got to explain that to me. Um, but, but if I hold that loosely, because I can be wrong. And there are other areas of how we think about eschatology we should hold loosely, because there are great scholars and great Christian theologians for 2,000 years that have looked at these issues very, very differently. And we're going to try to unpack uh, why that's the case. Um, so we hold them loosely, uh, and we realize that we may not be entirely right about all of our perspectives on those end. Okay, here's another reason why we hold them loosely, because it's still yet to come. Every generation, every generation of Christians since the time of Paul thought that Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime. And nearly every generation of Christians since the time of Paul has been able to identify with the truths that are taught in the book of Revelation about a world system that is antichrist. Rome would have been the first, I mean, the, the early Christians would have read the book of Revelation and seen Rome. They wouldn't have seen a world government system that we might see today, like the European Union or the United States or Russia. You know what they would have seen? They would have seen Rome. That's what they would have pictured. And nearly every Christian generation for the last 2,000 years has seen in their own generation antichrist figures, or antichrist governments and world systems. And Jesus didn't come back in the last 2,000 years. Is it possible he'll come back in our lifetime? Yes. 
Absolutely, so we ought to be ready. But I'm just going to say this. It's likely, more likely, that you and I will die and you and I will step into the presence of God than that we'll be here when Jesus returns. Historically, it's more likely that that will happen. So we should hold our eschatological positions loosely. Let me give you some three basic overall, how, how do we think about eschatology? What does that look like? What does that mean? Three basic perspectives that are out there. All the ones we're going to talk about in the weeks to come fit under either loosely or very closely under one of these. Here's the first one, futurism. Futurism, that's the first blank there. Uh, Futurism is associated with premillennialism. Futurism views the majority of eschatological references in the Bible are going to be fulfilled in and around the second coming of Christ. So futurism reads the the book of Matthew 24 and 25, reads Daniel uh, chapters 7 through 12, and it reads the book of Revelation as prophetic uh, declarations that are going to be fulfilled primarily, not exclusively, but primarily when Jesus returns the second time. And so... Many of us that have come through a premillennial view of, of the return of Christ, and we'll talk about that in the coming weeks, we would have a futuristic perspective on the fulfillment of the, the, the last day's prophecies. They're still to be fulfilled in the future. That's futurism. A second perspective that has uh, been uh, popular in, in the life of the church is the perspective of preterism. I'll spell that, P-R-E-T-E-R-I-S-M, preterism, that is, it preceded, or realized eschatology, that is the opposite of futurism. For The preterist sees almost all eschatological claims as fulfilled in the past, primarily with the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And so you have two uh, opposites. You have futurism. Most of what we read in Revelation, Daniel, Matthew 24 and 25, that's to be fulfilled at some point in the future. Preterism looks at it and says, hold on a second, we don't think that's right. Most of what has been proclaimed or has been prophesied already took place. Took place at AD 70. It's already in the past fulfilled. Okay? And then there's a balanced perspective And that's the third perspective, which is essentially the one I hold in terms of an overall eschatological view. It's called inaugurated eschatology. Inaugurated eschatology is best described by the phrase already and not yet. There are things that have already happened. There are things that are yet to take place. For example, most... uh, prophecies in the Old Testament a great majority of the prophecies in the in the Old Testament have been realized in Jesus that means they've been inaugurated when Jesus came in other words the most and I, I think I can say this very safely the most significant prophecies in the Old Testament were not about what is yet to be the most significant prophecies in the Old Testament are about what has already been the prophecies about Jesus' birth, the prophecies about the Messiah's suffering, Isaiah 53, 
Psalm 22, other places. Those are the most significant prophecies of the Old Testament because they're the ones that we can look at in the New Testament and see fulfilled in Jesus. So the primary emphasis of the inaugurated eschatology is that Jesus fulfilled the most significant prophecies of the Old Testament, which still leaves prophetic utterances in the New Testament that may yet to be fulfilled. While the kingdom has come, that is, Jesus came and began his kingdom, the church, that is, between the resurrection and the second coming, now has the obligation to worship Christ and make disciples of all nations until Jesus returns again. And there are yet plenty of things to think about in the future. Now, I'm going to take a pause from those overarching perspectives, and I'm going to deal with some more individual pictures of eschatology. And we're going to do that over the course of the next few weeks. Next week, we're going to look at the subject of judgment and hell. So the the great white throne judgment, uh, the final judgment, uh, what does hell mean? What does that experience uh, in a, two weeks from now, we're going to look at grace and heaven. And what do we think about heaven? What do we think about the final state of our uh, human experience in Christ? And then uh, in three weeks and then four weeks, we'll get into the millennial views, the different types of perspectives there. And we're going to look at some difficult texts and kind of competing topics as we move on. And depending on how far I get in my study, we may take a few more weeks and, and dive a little deeper or uh, I, may, I may just say I'm, I'm done with the studying eschatology and we finish up and we, we move on to more practical matters of Christian experience and Christian living. What I, what I want to look at now is, is, is something that is very practical to us and is what we might call individual eschatology. What I mean by that is what you and I are, are expected to experience when we die. Because the doctrine of last things has with it, in its, uh, in its encompassing theology, it's not just about, you know, Antichrist and, and millennial reign and, and all of that stuff that's in the future for big picture. Part of eschatology is what is in your future. Like, what's going to happen when you die? And so individual eschatology. And one of the areas that, uh, that, that we need to unpack is the intermediate state. In other words... What happens when a person dies? Where does that person go? Now, popular answer would be, if they're a Christian, they go to heaven. Or if they're an unbeliever, they go to hell. Is that really what the Bible teaches? Does it really teach that explicitly? Over the years, there have been a variety of different perspectives on what happens in the intermediate state. What's the intermediate state? The state between death and resurrection. Let me pop your bubble a second, or, or pop a bubble, maybe not your bubble, okay? Our eternal future is not in a disembodied soul or spirit. We're not going to be floating around in heaven for eternity, kind of as wisps of air, okay? The ultimate purpose of the body that God gave you is to resurrect it, and to make it new, and your eternal existence, like forever and forever, is in a spiritually perfected, embodied state. And that does not happen until the resurrection. So what do we mean by the intermediate state? The intermediate state is between death and when that resurrection takes place and God reunites 
what is left behind, the soul, the spirit of us that is, that is, that is disconnected from our bodies when he reunites that with, with our resurrected body. The ultimate purpose of the life that God gave us, and you can go all the way back to Genesis and reflect on this. When God made Adam and Eve, what did he say about Adam and Eve? You remember what God said? He said, it is very good. He made Adam and Eve to live how long? Forever. In a bodied state. If Adam and Eve had not sinned, they would still be alive in an embodied state forever and forever and forever. Our permanent future is not in disembodied spirits. Our permanent future is a resurrected body reunited with the spirit that lives on after death. Okay, so what's the intermediate state? What happens between death and resurrection? There are several options that have been presented over the years in in Christian history. One option is the immortality of the soul. So the soul is essentially uh, lives on forever. This is based on Platonic anthropology, uh, Plato's version of what happens. This is a Greek concept, not a biblical concept at all. Uh, It's the idea that the soul has always been. I've even heard this in Christian circles where the souls of, of humans are waiting on God to put them into a, uh, a, 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 the con- a conception when, when a man or a woman, you know, a, a baby is conceived, that the, the soul that's in heaven is implanted in that person, and that soul's always been, and that soul will always be. It's, uh, you know, there's a Greek word for that. It's called hogwash. Uh, that's not what the Bible teaches. Uh, you began when conception happened. Our soul is not immortal in the sense of going back forever. The Bible does just simply does not teach that. One commentator puts it this way, the doctrine of the immortality of the soul is not a doctrine about life after death. Rather, it teaches that the human being possesses a divine identity which is beyond birth and death. What cannot die when the body dies was not born when the body was born either. And has never lived in the body. It's just plain and simple, not what the Bible teaches. No text and verse that can talk about the the soul being immortal going all the way back. Uh, There are places in Scripture that talk about the soul being immortal in the sense of going forward. Like like we will always live in some state, whether it's a state of judgment or whether it's a state of bliss in heaven. But not going back. We are not that. We are beings that God spoke into existence. He created us. He made us. We've not always been. We're not divine. That, that, that is, it's just We need to get that thought of, out of our mind. So that's, that's not a position that we can hold if we're going to look at what Scripture teaches. A second particular view that has been raised over the years about the intermediate state is the, the uh, perspective of purgatory. Uh, the concept of purgatory is largely Roman Catholic, though not uh, only Roman Catholic. It, it, it says that those in a state of grace but are not spiritually perfect go into purgatory. So um, purgatory comes from, uh, from the concept that those who have committed vile sins against God uh, and they're, they're destined for hell, they don't go to purgatory, they go straight to judgment. And then there are those who are in Christ, kind of perfected in Christ. Their spiritual state is right. In other words, they're the Catholics who always do all the seven sacraments and they're faithful in their sacramental observations. 
they get to go straight into heaven. But what about those that are sort of okay, but not really okay? They sort of believe in Jesus, but they've not been perfected by Jesus. Well, they go to purgatory. And the doctrine of purgatory is one of the doctrines that drove the, the Reformation. Uh, if you remember the story of Martin Luther, uh, Martin Luther was appalled by the preaching about purgatory. Uh, there was a, a particular Roman Catholic theologian preacher revivalist really he would go through the towns and villages and he would say if you give me money then I will pray for your loved one who is in purgatory and they will go out of purgatory and they will experience heaven they'll they'll kind of step out of that place of intermediate judgment and go to heaven and uh and so it was a way that the Roman Catholic Church believe it or not raised money to complete Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel They had a money problem, and so they sent out preachers who would preach uh, on the doctrine of purgatory. And if you paid enough money, they would pray hard enough for your loved one to go out of purgatory and go to heaven. So the line was, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Um, Some of y'all will get that later. The doctrine of purgatory is quite simply not found in Scripture. The, The place that it is referenced is in an apocryphal document, the Second Maccabees which Roman Catholics believe is, is kind of lined up with, uh, with the Bible, but we do not hold it to be biblical at all. Uh, Robert Latham put it this way, the most crucial weakness of the dogma of purgatory is theological. If there were sins for which post-mortem purification were needed, then the finality and sufficiency of the work of Christ would be eroded. In other words, the, the bottom line is, if we need to be in purgatory to be finally cleansed of our sin... Why did Jesus die on the cross? You know, one of the, the troubles with purgatory is it assumes too much in terms of our role and responsibility in our own purification. Folks, you and I can't make ourselves clean. It's not possible. We can't wash ourselves enough to cleanse our, us of our sins. The death of Jesus on the cross is the only thing that justifies. It's the only thing that cleanses. It's the only thing that forgives. And if it cleanses and forgives then guess what? It cleanses and forgives, not just for today or tomorrow, but it cleanses and forgives forever. And we don't need some kind of intermediate state to experience more purification. By the way, there's no place in all of the Bible that talks about a place like purgatory. It's just not found in the text. It's uh, Roman Catholic dogma and and theological kind of um, uh, position that has arisen out uh, out of, you know, pragmatics, out of bad theology, and so that's purgatory. A third kind of problematic position on the intermediate state of the, the soul would be soul sleep. This is popularized by Seventh-day Adventists, among others. It's the idea that the soul reposes in a place of unconsciousness until the resurrection. It's the idea that, that okay, when we die, uh, we, we just kind of go to sleep. And it, it picks up on the imagery language of the New Testament that death is sleep, it picks up on that imagery, but it takes it to a, uh, its full extent to say, okay, that's literally what we do. We're asleep until the resurrection. We're not in a, in an aware, in a state of awareness. What does the Bible teach? The Bible teaches that upon death, believers enter into the space where God is, uh, which is paradise, to use Jesus' language, uh, to the thief on the cross. Um, and I, I don't... I want to be careful here. don't want to pop your bubble too much, but that's not heaven. Not as we're going to discover heaven in the book of Revelation. 
not the final state of what God's going to do. God's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. That hasn't happened yet. So it's the place where God is, a place of paradise. You could look at the story of Lazarus and, and the rich man and see a picture of what, what I would guess or what I think Scripture teaches about where we go. We go to a place of repose, a place of paradise, a place where God is, but not necessarily heaven, not in the sense of streets of gold and, and what the book of Revelation talks about. That's for believers and unbelievers enter into a place of judgment. Sheol, uh, Hades, but again, that's not hell. At least not the future hell, like a fire that we're going to talk about in the book of Revelation. Where do we get that from? Look, if you will, with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Claim that Paul makes, and then also we'll glance at Revelation chapter 6. So Paul is making an argument in the book of uh, 2 Corinthians for his ministry. And um, he talks about uh, verse 1 of chapter 5. We know that if this tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan. Anybody want to say amen there? In this tent we groan. In this living dwelling we groan in the difficulties we face. Longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Verse 6, so we are always of good courage. We know that that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. So Paul makes it very clear that if we're out of our body, we're home with the Lord. So wherever God is, that's where we'll be. So if that, that's not the future heaven that we may read about in the book of Revelation. It's still good because it's where God is. In fact, really what makes heaven heaven is not the streets of gold. It's not the mansions. It's not the crystal sea. It's not the tree of life. What makes heaven heaven is what? It's where God is. That's the most important thing about the future experience of the believer. Verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Uh, Skip over to Revelation 6. A picture there, um, 6 verse 9, about what the place where God is looks like in the book of Revelation anyway. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will, uh, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? And they were given each a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Talking about the persecution that that, uh, takes place as pictured and depicted in the book of Revelation. And so the souls there are underneath the throne. They're there in God's presence, crying out for justice. Souls, meaning that they've not yet been resurrected to their fully embodied states, which of course hasn't happened in the book of Revelation yet, which will take place. And so, uh, where, where are we upon death? Well, if we're a Christian, we're in the presence of the Lord. 
Where are you upon death if you are not a Christian? Separated from God. With, uh, according to scripture, without any opportunity to, to do anything about that. Let me give you a few takeaways and then we will uh, we'll finish up for the night. Um, theological takeaway. God gives to his people the doctrine of eschatology to encourage, to bring hope, and to alleviate, not create fear. I've talked with Christians over the years who say they don't like reading the book of Revelation. as what they read troubles them. And certainly there are some images in the book of Revelation that are quite disconcerting. Like what are those locusts with snake tails, you know, that bite you? I mean, what, what is that? Um, I can remember being, uh, I won't do this, okay, as your pastor, but I can remember being in classes as a teenager at a church where uh, one, of the, one of the teachers at the church got up and he talked about what all of the images of the book of represent, Re, Revelation represented. You know, atomic bombs and helicopters and tried to identify all the images with modern day pictures. Um, if I pop your bubble, I'm sorry. That is not the way to read the book of Revelation. That is very, very flawed. That is very 21st century centric rather than centered around what God is actually trying to teach us in the book of Revelation. There are images in the book of Revelation that are troubling. But do you know the book of Revelation is not a book about eschatology primarily? It's not the revelation of the end times. You know what the book says? Look, look just for a second. Revelation chapter 1. All he needs is one verse. The revelation of Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation isn't primarily about the church or the lack of church or judgment or heaven, or hell, or resurrection, or the millennium. It, it, it includes a lot of those things, but the book of Revelation is primarily about Jesus. It is the revelation of Jesus as king in his unfettered glory. Notice what he, can you just, just read with me for a second. Which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. So if your soon doesn't include 2,000 years, then the book of Revelation is not about today. So we got we got to do some, some word work here and figure out what exactly he's talking about. I'm getting ahead of myself, but just, just flow with me. He made it known to John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John of the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and look at this last phrase, the ruler of the kings on earth. The book of Revelation is about Jesus who was king. So as we look at the gospel of the kingdom in the coming weeks, here's one thing to remember. There is a God who's in charge, and he is not sitting in a White House. He's not in Moscow. He didn't, he didn't lead the Third Reich. He isn't an emperor that was on his throne in Rome some 2,000 years ago. There's a God who's on his throne, and his name is Jesus. He is the ruler of the kings of earth. He's in charge. 
And, and the early church needed to hear that because it looked like Rome was in charge and Nero was in charge and Domitian was in charge and the other evil emperors that, that martyred Christians over and over again. But that's not true. The book of Revelation is about Jesus who is in charge, who's a picture of kingly rule. Next time you read the book of Revelation, if you want to be really encouraged, read through it and ignore everything that doesn't specifically talk about Jesus. In fact, if you have a Bible at home that is not your primary Bible and you don't mind like marking in it, get a highlighter and look in the book of Revelation at every picture of Jesus and just go through really quickly, read the 22 chapters and highlight or underline everything in the book of Revelation that's explicitly about Jesus. And just kind of ignore everything else for a moment. Just look at what's about Jesus. And then go back and read just what's about Jesus. And all the things you're going to read about Jesus, you're going to walk away and think, whew, man, I'm glad he's on my side, and I'm glad I'm on his side. And, man, that's encouraging. That's a blessing. And then I'm not saying we completely ignore everything else, but you want to be encouraged to see what it says about Jesus because that's the most important part of the book. It's not, it's not the stuff we can't figure out that's important. I mean... All scripture is important, but it's apocalyptic language. Some of it we're going to have trouble figuring out. That's the whole point of apocalyptic imagery. But there are parts and many parts that are explicit about who Jesus is that's encouraging. So God gave us the doctrine of eschatology to encourage us, not to, cre- not to create fear. We shouldn't walk around afraid. We should walk around encouraged because our God is on his throne. He rules. Worship takeaway. The doctrine of eschatology is shaped by the king and his kingdom, which points us to the God who is worthy of being worshipped. I preached on this a few weeks, a few, a few months back. Revelation 4 and 5. Where is God? He's on his throne. Where's Jesus? He's in the throne room. He's got a king, he's got a crown on his head. He is the king. Where's the church? Worshiping God and worshiping the king. We, we, don't, we, not, uh, we don't really like the language of kings and, and kingdoms, we're, uh, we're, and, and that's due to our historical heritage. We cast off a tyrant some 200-plus uh, years ago because we didn't like kings telling us what we had to do without representation and all that kind of stuff, and if a few things were different, we might still be British if the, the king and the parliament had actually kind of been, been rational and reasonable during that period of time, but nevertheless, we cast off the kingdom that we were under. And so Americans are not really comfortable with the language of king and kingdom. We don't really like that. But just as a reminder, uh, God made us to be kings. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself in sermon series. He made us to be kings and queens. He made us to be vice regents with him. Go back and read Genesis chapter 1. He made us to have dominion over the earth. And here's what we do. We create our own kingdoms, our own little fiefdoms. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, I say this to my boys all the time. You don't live in a democracy in our house. You live in a benevolent dictatorship ruled by me and your mom. They don't like that. They, they don't like that at all. If you heard anything like that as a kid, you didn't like that either. We like creating our own little kingdoms, but, but here's the reality. We're either going to serve ourselves and think we're really in charge. We're either going to serve something else. Jesus put it this way. You can't have more than one master. Money, power, pleasure, whatever it might be. We're going to serve God. And, and do you know the Christians that are the most at peace with what's going on in their lives in the world? They're the ones who aren't serving themselves. They're the ones who aren't serving money, power, or pleasure. 
Well, the ones who are serving the one who's really king. In fact, the Bible is a book about the king. And you know the greatest way that we can express our trust in the king? It's to worship. It's to sing praises. It's to pray in faith. It's to declare his truth. An evangelistic takeaway. Our hope in the king today means that we operate under his authority for his purposes. What are his purposes? To proclaim the good news of the king's salvation to sinners. Whatever your doctrine of last things lands at, amillennial, premillennial, postmillennial, wherever you land, wherever, wherever it is, pre-trib rapture, mid-trib rapture, no-trib rapture, no-trib, tribulation, antichrist, whatever you, wherever we land in all those things, we as the church have a responsibility from the ascension of Jesus to the return of Jesus. Our responsibility is to take the king's message to people who are not in relationship with the king. That's our job. One of the reasons I don't spend a whole lot of time talking about eschatology, it's not because it's not important, it's not because there's not a value to it, it's because regardless of whether we land on what's going to happen in the future, the responsibility for the present hasn't changed for 2,000 years and it won't. Our primary job as servants of the king is to worship him and tell others about him so that they can worship him too so that they can be forgiven and redeemed. That's why our mission at Wilkesboro Baptist Church is to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. There's nothing more important for your child or grandchild, your friend or your neighbor, your co-worker, your son or your daughter. There's nothing more important than them putting their faith and trust in Jesus and following him as king. Nothing is more important. Nothing will ever be more important. And unfortunately... What we do is we get caught up in all the things that aren't nearly that important. Relational takeaway. Last one. We can find encouragement together in the hope for God's people, the hope of resurrection, the hope of eternity with Christ, the hope of the gathered worship of God by his people. So why do we get together for church? Why do, we, uh, why do we sing together? Why do we have a chorus and a choir that sing for us and sing with us? Why do we have a praise team? Why do we need community? Why do we gather in Sunday school classes and groups and Bible studies and discipleship groups? Why? Because guess what? There are going to come some days when, uh, when you're struggling with what you're going through. And you need somebody else that you can look at and say, Brother, sister, I'm struggling. I'm I'm hurting. I'm going through something, and I don't, I don't know how to work through it. And you need somebody to look at you and remind you that the king's on his throne. And we're together. We're going to be together through this. And then there are other days that you're going to be the one that, that you're fine, and somebody else is going to come to you, and they're going to need that same encouragement. Um, the church is the place where that's supposed to happen. The gathered people of God, whether it's in our worship services or our groups, is the place where we're supposed to be the encouragement and the hope to those around us that need it. And we've got opportunity to do so. Every time we open our voice to sing, we've got opportunity to do so. Every time we quote a scripture verse on Sunday morning, it's an opportunity to do so. To actually quote a verse like we mean it, like we believe it. Jesus' first message, I'm going to talk about it in a sermon in a few weeks, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
me just make make an aside here, okay? It's your pastor speaking. Sunday, uh, this Sunday at church, next Sunday at church, and the final Sunday in January at church, we're going to have people who don't know Jesus in our worship services. Okay? They're always there. Some of them are kids, some of them are teenagers, some of them are adults. Some of them are, are struggling with faith. Some of them haven't even thought about it, really. They're here just kind of by a divine incident, but, but they're not here by their own intent. What if they heard us as a church say loudly and clearly that Jesus' first message was to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Meaning that we believed it. We really believe this is what Jesus preached and what everyone needs to hear. What if in our voices, the lost people in our church family, in our congregation rather, on Sunday, heard that as meaningful? What, what does that do? Well, it encourages us. Folks, we need that together as a body of believers. We need our voices raised in song and in statement. We need to put a smile on our face and, and act like God's in charge. And sometimes we don't. Sometimes we act like, really, the Democrats are in charge. Or the Republicans are in charge. Or, heaven help us, the Supreme Court's in charge. Or, or another court's in charge. Or Russia's in charge. Or we, we, we act as if we're all... I mean, I, mean I, I get frustrated by that. I mean, I read the news articles, too. Like, you shake your head. Like, the irrationality that is present in contemporary politics... Like. Some of you that are a little bit older than me, has it always been this bad? I mean, is, is this something, we, is this always the way it is? I don't know. Frustrating. You know who shouldn't act like the world's ending because of all that? We shouldn't. Because it's not. We've got a king. He's on his throne. He's still on his throne. I, I hope that the, the, this series on Wednesdays and the series on Sundays will bring some encouragement to us and Man, we need to be people who live it and believe it because it is true. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found. 